Last week we talked about women in Minyan uh, and whether women can be counted in Minyan. This week we're going to talk about something which is a little bit um, more complicated. There are more parts to it. Um, I'm not sure it means it's conceptually more difficult, but it, it does make it a little bit more complicated, and that is um, whether women and men can be uh, equal in uh, Minyan in all capacities, meaning can they lead services to the same degree? Is there a support for that um, in the rabbinic tradition? So we're tending to look at that. Um, it's an interesting discussion, partially because, um, and I think you see this in the Shira Hadasha movement, that although we might conceptualize of Minyan um, and of leading a service as, well, you know, if a woman has the ability, if a woman is equivalent to a man, then she should be able to lead services in all capacities. The truth of the matter is there's actually several different discussions going on under the service. That is to say, like, what it means on a, from a technical perspective to lead, to say, barchu as a woman, is different from what it means to um, read the Torah or, for Purim last week, like, to read the Megillah. These are kind of different discussions. Um, and I think, like, one of the difficult parts of approaching this is that we might think about these as, like, well, it should be all the same thing, but the sources very much don't treat it like that. Um, we'll see, for example, that one of the kind of the stickiest problems, um, two sticky problems, actually, one is women blowing shofar, um, which we're not going to talk about today, but that seems to be one of the more intractable, intractable problems uh, of women's uh, empowerment and services. And the second is um, a woman saying the Shema and um, fulfilling the obligation of other people in the room um, who need to say Shema. Um, which you might not have thought intuitively that those are the most difficult questions, but those seem to be. Um, so we kind of have to go into this discussion recognizing that um, and also thinking about whether the kind of different kinds of discussions we need to have to talk about different parts of the services, whether that corresponds to some kind of value um, that we can speak about there being a different kind of value associated with Baruch Hu and with blowing the shofar, um, or whether this is part of the context in which these uh, obligations uh, were originally raised and also the development of Tefillah itself. So that is kind of a, a, pre a preface. Um, I want to kind of go back to last week's discussion, and I know that not all of you are here for last week, um, but just to kind of bring a critique on what we talked about last week. So last week we talked about uh, whether women can be counted in a minyan, and we finished right before I got to present a critique of everything that I had said beforehand. Um, and so I want to pre present a critique, and I didn't write this critique. Um, it hasn't been published, so I, I don't want to say much about it. Um, but this is a quote from it. This is source number one in your sheets. Um, and I kind of wanted to think about this critique um, because I think a lot of these comments are either things that you might have thought yourself um, or things that you will commonly hear about the kind of argument that we made last class. Um, so critique number one. At the end of the day, every posek, Rishon or Acharon, everybody, who discussed counting women towards the minyan, ruled against this option. Last time we talked about how there are these kind of preludes to the option of women leading, of women counting a minyan, but no one actually says 10 women can make up a minyan. The one exception to this rule is Rabbeinu Simcha, who is willing to allow a woman to complete a minyan. So based on what you've seen in this class so far, so how would you respond to this? What kind of response did you give to the statement? I mean, it's a very, it's perhaps the most important critique, right? No one actually says the things that um, we tried to conclude last class. I mean, they were all starting from a different set of values that <coughs> is, 
you know, that they, they weren't they weren't not concluding that necessarily because you couldn't get there through traditional holistic you know, methods of interpretation, but because the way that they chose that interpretation was consistent with certain you know assumptions about about women and their role in society that's not consistent with our current. Assumptions. Great. Um, so to put it a little bit differently, um, there's more to reading the sources than simply to reading what they say is the bottom line. There also has to be some discussion of uh, the context in which they're living. We talked about before forms, norms, and values. Um, and I think this is also helps us answer the second critique, which is even the Achronim, that is the, the sages in the past 500 years, more or less, who comment on Rabbeinu Simcha, clearly state that they do not follow his opinion, but do not rebuke those who do. The discussion is a theoretical one and not a practical one. So even those who are permissive, they don't, they're not permissive in a real sense, they're only permissive in a theoretical sense. This is a far cry from embracing this direction which the authors try to do. Um, so again, for a critique like this, you can say, yes, these sources never seriously entertain the possibility of women counting towards the young. Nonetheless, the manner in which they have the discussion, as well as the reasons for which the reasons that they say that women do not count towards the minyan are helpful in, for us in imagining how one might envision um, a halakhic position where women do count towards the minyan. Okay, so that's kind of two parts of this. Um, the third one, I think, goes more towards the kind of argument we were making, trying to move from those halakhic sources towards um, sources that we have, the, the, towards the conclusion that we tried to reach last class, which is faced with a position as to why women may be counted towards Kiddush Hashem while not counted towards the quorum of prayer. The author suggests that it, should be it, stems from, how from their low standing in society. Once that becomes the claim, it is easily refuted by stating that women in our modern society do not and should not have a lower standing. Hence, they should be counted to the quorum, to the minyan. Essentially, the authors claim that any authority that would count a woman for Kiddush Hashem would essentially agree that they could theoretically be counted for the quorum of prayer. Needless to say, this lacks proper foundation. While it is possible, this is the key sentence, I think, while it is possible that this logic is sustainable, it is far from the sole explanation. One could claim that the requirements of the quorum for the different issues are not one and the same. So, just to kind of summarize this, one of the elements of the argument we, we made last class is there is some report in the Talmud that women can count towards the minyan when the minyan is not a prayer minyan, it's a, mar it's, a, it's a minyan to witness a Jew's martyrdom or a Jew performing some bad act. For that, a woman counts the same as a man does. And so we said, okay, this precedent helps us kind of understand that it's context specific. Um, and we can kind of expand that um, to thinking about women in tefillah today. Um, there's nothing essentially wrong with counting a woman as part of a group of 10 people. Um, however, there are other ways to go with it. You can make the argument that, no, there's, there's a strong difference to today between a minyan for martyrdom and a minyan for tefillah. Um, so how would you respond to that? How would you respond to the argument that the argument that we made is not the only argument that one could make? Why not? Uh, because, you know, you go th through a I mean, tradition of different, of, of different block decisions being valid in different communities, but based on different leaders and different, and different values and so on. So, you know, if there are multiple acceptable positions, you know, I mean, I, unless you're making the claim that, that 
that yours is the only acceptable position that you know doesn't really threaten Great. So, so part of this is just to say that, you know, accept the critique that um, it is true there are many other ways to go with these sources and we're going in a particular direction and, and to kind of own that, that we are going in a particular direction with these sources um, towards a particular goal. Um, but there's a reason we're doing that. Part of the reason is actually to incorporate these sources which in some ways seem antithetical to the way we imagine um, a woman's status in a community today to try to take those sources and make them part of um, uh, the continued tradition that we have today. So there's a reason for this, um, and kind of by by having a final decision which allows women to be in a minyan based on a position like this, then you kind of activate that as the kind of argument that you want, respecting that there are other possibilities. Okay. Um, the fourth one is somewhat more technical, so I don't want to go into it right now. Um, but I just wanted to, to to mention that that there is there is a there is a critique, and these are these are some of the common critiques. Okay. Wait, the fourth one. I thought that that didn't seem that complicated to me. I just thought it meant that like there's a difference between being equal in community and being equal before God. Right. So the right. So the fourth one is is the is the question of um, a uh, <coughs> of kavodet sibor. Is that the same as talking about the honor of heaven? So I mean, again, one could argue that they are different. Yeah. You could easily argue that the honor of heaven. I mean, is I don't like that different. position, but right. it seems okay. Right. Um, okay. So that's last time. Um, moving on to today. So today the discussion is about um, women's uh, leading a minyan, uh, women serving as a chazan for all matters. Um, there's a lot of sources to talk about this. So I'm giving you kind of some of the key points. There's more to fill out. Um, and I should say kind of something that I forgot to say last time, which is that much of the material that I am presenting to you for this class and also for last class comes from a uh, essay which is currently in um, advanced draft form. Um, and you can find it online somewhere. Uh, I can send you a link uh, uh, that was put together by uh, Rabbi Ethan Tucker and Rabbi Michal Rosenberg uh, a few years ago, which presents both of these topics um, in somewhat more detail than I am giving you right now. Um, so you should look at that if you're interested in finding out more about this. Um, so if we're talking about uh, women participating in service, there are kind of two issues that we need to talk about. One is, um, whether a woman can fulfill the obligation of others. And the other is whether a woman can um, say something that's called a devar shedik uh, which is a kind of technical term which we'll, which we'll encounter in a minute. So first thinking about what it means to, distart, to discharge the obligation of others, um, we have the first sources. So does someone um, want, to, want to volunteer reading source number two? The deaf-mute, a fool, and a minor cannot discharge the many of their obligation. This is the principle. Anyone who is not obligated in a manner cannot discharge the many of their obligations. Great. So this is a key rabbinic principle, which you see over and over and over again. Um, and I think it kind of makes intuitive sense, right? That in order to fulfill a communal obligation, one must oneself be obligated. Uh, one must be part of that community, so to speak. OK. Yeah? Is this from McGill or Rosh Hashanah? Um, Sorry, I wrote both of those. I used from Rosh Hashanah. Okay. Um, so then this gets taken into discussion of prayer in the next source. Uh, so Josh, do you want to just continue with that? Sure. Women, slaves, and minors are exempt from the reading of Shema and from Tefillin and are obligated in prayer and in mezuzah and in grace after meals. Great. Okay. So putting these two sources together, one can already say, um, 
that a woman could, first of all, for grace after meals, certainly a woman could fulfill uh, the obligation of a man, but not for Shema. Um, and then going to the next source, which is a source you may have seen before. Uh, do you want to just read that one? Sure. Yeah. In all positive commandments caused by time, men are obligated and women are exempt. Great. Um, so this last source is, is somewhat problematic. Um, and many people have pointed this out, that the definition uh, or the kind of criterion that uh, women are not obliga obligated in um, time-based commandments, uh, um, is problematic for a number of reasons. One is that there are many commandments that are time-bound uh, for which women are obligated. So it's, it's unclear how the Mishnah comes up with this kind of definition. Um, but what, what, why this matters for our purposes is that we need to think about whether tefillah is a time-bound commandment or not a time-bound commandment. So what we're looking for in the sources right now is are women obligated in tefillah? And are they obligated <coughs> in tefillah to the same degree as men are? We've seen um, that they're not for Shema, but for tefillah, so for the Amidah specifically. Are women obligated the same as men? Um, and we'll see, perhaps to your surprise, perhaps not to your surprise, that actually the sources are pretty clear about this, that women are equally obligated to men. Um, actually, one of the kind of fascinating things in looking through the sources is just how solidly the Rishonim and some of the Achronim as well are very clear that the obligation of a woman in tefillah is identical to that of a man. Um, and this is true um, regardless of what you think about the nature of the obligation of tefillah itself. So if you look on the next page, on source number five, you have Rambam. Rambam holds a position that tefillah is a biblical command, is the oraita. Um, and so he writes this in Sefer HaMitzvot. Um, I decided to be mischievous and give you the, uh, the Judeo-Arabic and the English um, because, hey, that's what he wrote in. Um, so what he says here in source number five, the fifth commandment is the positive command which he commanded to us with regards to worshiping him. This command was repeated several times, so then Rambam goes on and gives you several biblical texts that explain how it is that we know that tefillah is a biblical commandment, and says, and then says the Sifri says, to serve him, ul avdo, this means prayer. So for Rambam, it's very clear that prayer is biblical. Great. He then goes on to expand this. Um, and does someone want to read um, source number six, the first paragraph? <coughs> Is it a positive commandment to pray every day, as it is written, You shall serve the Lord your God. By tradition, they learn that this service is prayer, as it, it says, and to worship God with all your heart. The sages said, What is the service? What is service of the heart? This is prayer. The number of prayers is not biblical, the form of prayer is not biblical, and the prayer has no biblically fixed time. Therefore, women and slaves are obligated in prayer because it is a positive commandment not caused by time. Okay, so there you go. There is your kind of important sentence, for our purposes at least. Um, we're saying two important things. One is that women are obligated in tefillah, and the second is that it is not caused by time. So he kind of um, places tefillah on the map and explains why it is that women and slaves are both obligated in prayer. Um, do you want to keep going, the next paragraph? Rather, the obligation of this commandment is like this. A person should supplicate and pray every day and tell of the Holy One's praise and afterwards ask for his or her needs as a request and a supplication and afterwards give praise and thanks to God for the good that has been bestowed upon him or her, each person according to his or her ability. Great. Thank you. Did you have a question? Um, I did, which is... Um, 
and I guess Ramam gets into this in the second paragraph that we just read a little bit, that, you know, how are we defining prayer? It seems like when he says that women and slaves are also obligated in prayer, he's not talking specifically about the form of prayer, like the canon of prayer that has come to be, but just generally in prayer in some not not necessarily a strict format. Great. So this is something does that matter. Right. This is something that you're gonna hear um, a lot nowadays in talking to people in the street, I don't know who you talk to, but talking to people about what it means for women to be obligated in prayer, uh, that yes, there is an obligation for women in prayer, but it is separate, it is distinct in some way from a man's obligation. Um, and some of those go back to sources like the second paragraph saying that yes, the, there is this obligation in prayer, but it is kind of much vaguer. It, it involves some kind of expression, but not the particular format that we have been holding to for um, many centuries. Um, the continuation of Ramba makes it very clear that this is not the case. Um, in fact, the obligation in tefillah for men and women is the same, not just in, in the kind of essence of what it means to pray, but also in the way that it is done nowadays. Um, I've, come out, I've cut out some of this, but he describes in the next paragraphs what prayer used to look like. Prayer used to be much more spontaneous. It used to involve people um, in the times of the first temple basically saying whatever they wanted to say, making stuff up, being as creative as possible, and that was prayer. However, there was this change at the end of the first temple period. The Jews all go into exile, and one of the results of exile is that people lose their knowledge of Hebrew. Because people lose their knowledge of Hebrew, it is much more difficult to pray, um, certainly in Hebrew. And so there is a practical result of this. And this is what he says in number five. And so Carl, do you just want to read number five? As a result of the uh, deterioration of Hebrew after the first exile, whenever someone prayed, his Hebrew language would be insufficient for him to ask for his needs or give praise to God unless other languages were mixed in. When Ezra and his court saw this, they established 18 blessings in their specific order. Right. So what is the reason that we have tefillah in the specific format? Basically because it is, has been very difficult for a very long time already um, for people to be creative in coming up with their own services. Okay. So this is important. Um, and Rambam goes, goes on and on to talk about this for several chapters, about the particulars of prayer, uh, what it actually means. But the important point is that because this is the evolution of um, the prayer format we are familiar with, women and men are equally obligated in it. And he never says at any point, this kind of um, format that was put together by Ezra only applies to men. Women kind of maintain the primordial um, prayer obligation of praying however which way they want in creative services. I mean, also just kind of, in terms of the way he explains it, doesn't really make sense, right? Everyone's Hebrew is deteriorating. Everyone has the same problem. Uh, not just men. And he makes this, in case you weren't sure, he makes this very clear right afterwards, and sorry, not right afterwards, but in the sixth chapter, where he says, women, and, women, slaves, and minors are obligated in prayer, and any man who is exempt from Shema is exempt from prayer, right? So they are all obligated. So it seems very clear from Rambam um, that uh, women and men are obligated in prayer in the same way, both in terms of biblical obligation, but also in terms of the way it's kept today. Okay, so check. Well, I'll ask if there's any questions before we say check. <laughs> okay. So that's kind of the first prong we need to discuss. That's if you think about prayer as being biblical. Now, what happens if you think about prayer as being a rabbinic obligation? Well, yeah. Um, sorry, just to go back to uh, the Rambam. So uh, d does he deal with the 
additional issue of our prayers now being time-bound um, rabbinically? So it seems um, that the prayers, that, so tefillah itself remains non-time-bound, regardless of the, it's a good question, regardless of the fact that the particular services that we have nowadays are time-bound, the obligation itself remains kind of essentially non-time-bound. So that's actually a helpful way of explaining that, even though it might look like that the tefillot are, you know, are bound by time, it's actually not the case because of that primordial obligation still being like the central reason that one is obligated. Um, yeah, and, he's, and, and as far as I know, he doesn't make a distinction anywhere saying that it's rabbinically time-bound versus biblically time-bound. Like it's simply, it's a time-bound commandment. Does that answer? So he was saying, so according to the Ramam, we would say that um, the primordial um, Torah obligation is already the time. But we said that the prayer has no biblically fixed time. Right, so, th so, right. so, it's, not, so, there, so it's not biblically time. So he yet. does not bring in time at all. Correct. Okay. Right. So it's, like, it's, a, it's an essential characteristic of Tila, at least for Rambam, on the biblical level that it is not time-bound, and that's something which stays with the prayer, regardless of how it's enacted rabbinically. Um, okay. So that's, that's the one part of it. <coughs> Rashi and Ramban um, disagree with Rambam about this. They think that prayer is a rabbinic obligation. And so Rashi, in source number eight, says this. They are obligated in prayer, and this is a, a comment um, on the discussion in Brachot about this. He says, because prayer is a request for mercy, and it is from the rabbis who established it even for women and for educating children. So both at the same time that he is saying that tefillah is rabbinic, he also says that it, there is an equal obligation to it. And as well in the next source, um, it should not read this as obvious, for it is not a biblical commandment. So he's very clear it's not biblical. Um, what this means at the same time is um, if one would want to make the argument that the reason that a woman cannot kind of fulfill a man's obligation for tefillah is because they are obligated on different levels, that is, a man is obligated biblically and a woman is obligated rabbinically, that seems to me not to be the case. Meaning, for those sources which say that there is a biblical command for tefillah, those sources, i.e. Rambam, say that men and women are equally obligated. And for those sources like Rashi, who say that men and women are rabbinically obligated, well, there's no two levels anymore. There's only the rabbinic level. So either men and women have the same obligation biblically and rabbinically, or they have the same obligation rabbinically. Um, but either way, it's the same obligation. Uh, and you see this as well in uh, Ramban, Nachmanides. So R Ramban uh, wrote a, a commentary on Sefer Mitzvot where he takes apart piece by piece um, a lot of what Ramban does. It's actually kind of nice like that in a lot of, um, in a lot of halakhic texts, the, a person and that person's kind of most ardent critic will end up being printed together on the same page for all eternity, especially for Rambam. Like, literally, like, there are people like the Rivet who writes on the Rambam, like, his kind of critiques of Rambam are printed together with him in basically every edition of Rambam. Um, so it's like having, like, your professor's, like, comments in your essay be with you for all time. <laughs> um, so Ramban here says, does someone want to read this? The master taught that the fifth commandment is that we must worship God as it is said, and you shall worship the Lord your God, and in the words of the Sutra, worship, this is prayer. This point is not agreed upon. The sages already clarified in the Gemara that prayer is only rabbinic. We also see that in the Hilchot Tefillah, he said that one is biblically obligated to pray every day, but that neither the, prayer, the number of prayers nor the precise form of the prayers is biblical. 
So, too, he wrote here in the context of the Tenth Commandment, where he said that prayer has no biblically fixed time, despite the fact the obligation to pray is itself biblical. This also seems incorrect to me. It is reported that Rabbi Huda would pray only every 30 days, since he was constantly learning and based himself on the view that scholars engaged in Torah must, must stop for Shema, but not for prayer, which is always only rabbinic in authority. Rather, prayer is not obligatory at all on the biblical plane, and it is merely one of the Creator's traits of kindness that the Blessed One listens to us and answers us whenever we call. And in the Exodus in the Sifre, it is merely a support for a rabbinic practice or means that part of um, the support for means that part of our service to God must be study and prayer in times of need, and that our eyes and hearts must always be turned to Him, uh, like those of servants to their masters. Great. So, I think it's pretty clear from, from this paragraph that. Um, Right, so prayer is not obligatory in the way that Rambam says, and um, he goes through many of the Rambam's proof texts to say these actually don't prove his point. So he dismantles the argument, but does not say anything about women and men having separate obligations in that process. So we're still maintaining this. Um, and now, what actually happens when we get to the Shulchan Aruch? Shulchan Aruch says, women and slaves, even though they are exempt from reciting the, t- the Shema, are obligated in prayer because it is a positive commandment not caused by time. So who so is like? So it's like Maimonides, right? So, so even if you didn't buy what I just said about about Rashi and Nachmanides, <coughs> when you actually get to the Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch is fully supportive of the idea that uh, Tefillah is not a time-bound commandment; it is a positive obligation, and so women and men should be equally obligated in it. So, so far, so good. Um, there's got to be a catch at some point, right? There's got to be a catch. It's on page number four. Um, so the catch. The catch comes quite late. The catch comes in the 17th century with the Magian Avraham. The Magian Avraham um, is, as far as I know, the first source which supports the position that there is a difference between men and women in terms of the obligation of Tefillah. And I should back up for a second to say, like, okay, it might be that Shulchan Aruch says that men and women are equally obligated, I don't think we're actually imagining that this means something practically. Like critique number two on the first page, this is a theoretical possibility, but no one kind of connects the dots and says, oh, well that means that like a woman could do the repetition of the Amidah. It remains a theoretical possibility. It's important for purposes say of saying that women have to pray. Women have to pray the Amidah the same way that men do, but it doesn't get taken into the arena of saying that women actually can fulfill that role in practice. As far as I know, this is not something that happens. Um, we come to the Magin Avraham, and the Magin Avraham presents us with a somewhat different picture. Um, so, uh, Ava, do you want to read number 11, Magin Avraham? A positive commandment. So wrote the Ramam, who thinks it praise a positive biblical commandment, as it is written, and to serve God with all of your hearts. But biblically, it is sufficient to recite one prayer a day in any formulation that one wishes. Therefore, most women have the practice of not praying regularly, because immediately after washing their hands in the morning, they say, to say some request, and this is biblically sufficient. And it is possible that the sages did not extend their obligations any further. But the Ramban thinks that prayer is rabbinic, and this is the opinion of most authorities. Okay. So the Magin Avraham presents this possibility that um, women in fact, to fill their obligations by saying some request. They ask for something, and that biblically is sufficient. Did you have a question, John? Yeah. What, is, what does Sorry. the last sentence in this source mean about, I mean, the, the Ramban thinks the prayer is rabbinic, and, that's, and this is the opinion of most of I mean, I know that we just went through that, but does, is he also trying to say something further, that the Ramban thinks that, like, that there's a 
do you perceive obligations on a prayer list rabbinic, or is he just, or is he just sort of, you know, making the same basic distinction that that, that you were just making? Um, so I think what he's actually doing is, is the so the Magin Avraham here is trying to provide some support for a practice which he sees. He sees that women actually aren't praying the same way as men, and says, well, maybe you could say that this is okay from Maimonides' perspective. Why? Because from Maimonides, it's a biblical command. The biblical command seems to be somewhat more limited than what we actually do in practice, and so they kind of fulfill it, even though they don't actually do it. He's, like, he's trying to um, rationalize for them. But then he kind of, at the end, says, but in reality, this doesn't work. Why? Because Ramban, and from his perspective at least, most authorities don't agree with this. They think, they think it's rabbinic. So there's no kind of biblical command that women could be fulfilling by asking their bakasha. So this actually this supports the idea that women really do still have to pray the Amidah the way that men do, although he does the first time, and this is what's critical, for the first time he presents a rationale for why they wouldn't, even though it's not actually what he's arguing for. But, but is, I mean, isn't that a rationale that could equally apply to men? That which, I mean, I mean, couldn't couldn't you say that? I mean, it says most women have the practice of not praying praying regularly right. because immediately after washing their hands in the morning they say some requests. I mean, is that something particular about women holistically, or is that just sort of? So you could say it about men too. The reason he's saying about women is because that's, that's what women are doing. Right. right. But uh, men right. could do that. I mean, from a holistic perspective, would he say that you know? Well, I think he would, he would entertain the same theoretical possibility that maybe you could argue that men could do this. He's not really interested in that because that's not something he's seeing men doing it. And either way, he doesn't see him, think it's a good idea. Um, right, I think that's the key. That, like, he doesn't actually like this right. as far as, it's just, he's trying to find some way to justify that what he sees are, you know, women all over the place in his community violating halakha. Right. And, you know, well, that can't be right. We have to find some way out of that. So this is a fascinating source, and I don't quite know what to do with it. And that, like, this is, for the first time in the 17th century, you're seeing someone's kind of provide this rationale for this, there being this gap between the way that men pray and women pray. And I don't know what this means, why it comes up now. Is it because before that time, before the 17th century in Poland, men and women were praying exactly the same? Um, is it because no one thought it was necessary to kind of support the fact that women are praying differently from men, even though they had been doing so the whole time? Are there other like historic texts that would suggest that prior to this, men and women were sharing prayer spaces? Like, are there synagogues, or are there other communities? Like, what? I mean, I could see, it just seems like there there could be other historical evidence. Right, so one of the reasons this is a difficult question to answer is that, um, so I'm not a historian of um, synagogue architecture, uh -huh. um, for the most part, synagogues are a are almost exclusively dominated by men. You know, I sometimes women do have prayer spaces. Synagogue. I know a historian of synagogue architecture. Yeah, that is very <laughs> unlikely for me. So I'll put you guys in touch. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there are um, in in for example, um, in medieval and early modern Europe, there are situations where women have their own prayer um, prayer spaces. Mm -hmm. For the most part, that's not the case which suggests that if women are praying, they're doing so mostly on their own, which is one of the reasons that it's difficult to know what women are doing in practice in terms of how are they praying. Or would there be like mixed prayer spaces? No, right? usually not. Usually it's, it's, it's male dominated. So there might be like a woman's space in some synagogues, but it's mostly, um, 
it's mostly. So because of like for the purposes of Kol Hanishma, Kol Isha, sorry, they're still not praying together at any point. Whether or not they have the same obligations for the same kinds of prayers, it's still not what happening. What do you mean by together? Like the way you're sitting next to Josh right now. Like egalitarian. Yeah. Like. No, I mean, even if women are obligated in prayer, that doesn't mean that we haven't talked about Mahitza at all. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm just—I was just envisioning this kind of like you know, 14th century synagogue where everyone's just either there together or most women aren't going because they have so much other stuff going on, and then it's just like a back, like a room in the back, or like yeah, no, I'm I'm very yeah. familiar with that, but I was wondering if there were other <laughs> spaces where that wasn't. Yeah, so usually not sometimes, but usually not. Yeah. Um, the question of kol isha about whether um, there is a separate problem of women singing together and that being licentious in some way does enter the, into this discussion. We're not going to talk about it now. Um, it seems to be not so pertinent, especially for prayer. It seems to be like if you're if you're going to make an argument about kol isha being a problem, prayer is like the last space where it'd be a problem, like this sanctified environment. Um, but putting that aside, so. It's a good question, and I think like you're kind of you're asking something which is important, which is so what do we know about like women's practices in the past? And the answer so often is like we don't know exactly um, what that women was were doing. What I was yeah, um, this is I mean this is probably the most unsettling thing of all about this whole conversation. It's not like it's not kind of like this constant stream of misogyny, but simply like this silence, like so much silence about what women are doing, how they're supposed to practice, like. The, the texts are clearly oriented towards like what men need to do. Um, so, and I think next week when we talk about homosexuality, that's going to be something which comes up again as well. Not next week, in two weeks. Um, okay. So, just to finish the Magin Abraham, he makes the same point uh, later on. The Ramah, or Moshe Ezerlis, who um, comments on the, who, who is kind of comments go into the Shulchan Aruch as kind of the minhag for Ashkenaz, says one should always teach women who do not make Havdalah and the Amidah to say Baruch uh, HaMavdim uh, Blessed is one who separates holy from mundane before they do any forbidden labor. And the Magin Avraham comments on this um, even, though they are not, even though they are obligated in the Amidah as it is written in Siman uh, 106, nonetheless most do not have the practice of praying at the end of the Shabbat. He's just stating this is what people don't do this. Women don't do this. Perhaps this is because the evening prayer is optional save the fact that Jews accepted it upon themselves as obligatory, and the women never obligated themselves to pray at the end of Shabbat. So he's kind of hypothesizing, well, you know, I, I see that women don't pray after Shabbat is over. Why is that? Maybe it's because Mariv doesn't have the same kind of obligatoriness as the other two prayers. Uh, maybe women never, never accepted this upon themselves. So this, these are kind of his suggestions. He's trying to, to, to grapple with the concept. What ends up happening is that the Magin of Raham's position here or his kind of like thinking out loud gets taken into um, a rationale for women not praying, um, and later on into um, later halachic works, which I'm not, which I haven't given you here, into an actual position that the obligation for men and women in tefillah is different. But so to kind of finish off this section, it seems to be that the magen of Raham aside, there is a pretty broad consensus that the obligation of women in tefillah is the same as that of a man. Although none of these sources then take that further to say, and therefore women are, you know, are welcome to be leading the repetition of the Amidah. They don't go there. Yeah. And even the Magan Abraham, like like we said, whatever division he does make, he's only trying to explain right, those norms. He's not saying 
he's not saying that there is actually a difference in the end of both of them. He he says, but in reality, women should be doing it, right. and they are equally obligated. Um, so this is, I think, important in thinking about our relationship to halakhic text, which is that. Um, some of the arguments that we've made in this class, I think, tend towards um, the radical from the perspective of orthodoxy. Meaning, like, I don't think all of the methodologies that we've used, for example, last class, when we are talking about minyan and about the category of women in halakhic texts being different from women today, that kind of argument might not fly in all orthodox circles. But here, it seems like th these are pretty straightforward texts. Um, part of what it means to kind of think about egalitarianism is not always so radical. It's simply about looking for sources. And this is something, although, although Rabbi Daniel Sperber, um, who, who wrote some of the important texts about the Shirah HaDashah movement, although he doesn't, as far as I know, advocate for women being able to uh, do the repetition of the Amidah, one of the things he does advocate for is we should be looking for texts that help us. Um, there's no problem with trying to activate sources from our past um, which are helpful for us. There is not much sophisticated reading that we need to do here to kind of activate this. Um, and so it's interesting to see that sometimes a source can be there in front of our eyes, but it's entirely silent, like it's deactivated. It doesn't have any um, implications in a practical way. Um, and sometimes that happens um, when those laws are stricter than we practice. Sometimes they're more lenient. Sometimes they're more egalitarian. And I think this is a good example of where there's, there are these sources which are not active, which they're worth thinking about, they're worth having as part of the conversation. Um, and it requires like people to have them be part of the conversation by kind of acting on them. Um, okay, so that's part one. Um, questions about that before we go on? Okay. The second part um, is this question of Devar Shabikdusha. Uh, there are certain elements in the tefillah, and it'll be clear in a minute what those elements are, which seem to require um, 10 people to say, for someone to, to say them, and also um, might require um, a man's <coughs> presence. They might need to be said by a man. Um, so we start this by looking at a source we saw last time, the Mishnah Megillah, uh, which gives this list of things where you need 10 people to, to say them. Um, so in source number 14, it says, so uh, responsibly setting the Shema, porcine at Shema, Shema. Uh, communal, um, sorry, having a communal prayer leader, priestly blessing, reading the Torah, reading from prophets, performing the standing, setting ritual for the dead, saying the blessings of, for mourners, comforting mourners, reciting wedding blessings, um, reciting uh, zimun, all these things require a Great, so far there's no mention of Devar Shabbat Kedusha. Um, we get this in the next page, uh, where is, there is a link made between requirement for 10 and Devar Shabbat Kedusha. You see in Talmud Bavli Megillah, how do we know this, referring to the text we just saw? Said Rabbi Chiyabar Abba and said Rabbi Yochanan, the verse says, and I will be sanctified in the midst of the children of Israel, any Devarshib Kedusha, Vniktashti, so the same word, Kedusha, um, any Devarshib Kedusha should not be said with fewer than 10. So based on this, we have the sense that a Devarshib Kedusha requires 10 people, and perhaps as well that those things on the list in Megillah are Devarim Shib Kedusha. Great. Um, we then, and so we also have this in source number 16. Uh, said Rabbi Adabar Ahava, from where do we know that an individual does not say the Kedusha? As it is said, and I will be sanctified in the midst of the children of Israel, any Devar Shabbat should not be said with fewer than 10. So this is important because uh, the list we had before didn't say anything about Kedusha. It wasn't on the list, but now it is because of this source. Um, 
And we have in source number 17 another version of the Mishnah and Megillah, which adds two important elements. This is from Masechet Sofrim. We don't know exactly when it was written, but sometime um, after, the, after the Amoraic period, so sometime between, say, 600 and 900. This is as far as we know right now. Um, but it adds, importantly, not saying Kaddish or Baruch So those things are also Devar Shebikdusha. So the question is, can a woman say Devarim Shebikdusha? Okay. Um, this hinges, it seems, um, I'll, present it, I'll present it like this. Um, in order to argue that a woman would be able to say these things that require Devar Shebikdusha, um, one first has to make a linkage between Devar Shebikdusha and Kavod Hetzivor, uh, community of, community's honor. Um, there are several texts in the Talmud Bavli which talk about this idea of a community's honor of Kavod Hetzivor. Um, so in source number 18, there's a few of them. Um, so one of them is not reading from a chumash in Shul, right? So a chumash in, in this context means not from a scroll, but some kind of codex. Um, or kind of like a separated book, like not the entire Torah, but part, but part of the Torah. So you can't read from that uh, in a congregation. Why? It's, um, it is considered because of an issue of Kavod Tzibor. Um, it goes against the community's honor in some way. Um, this is also true. You don't roll the synagogue, you don't roll a Torah scroll in public because of the same issue. Um, you also can't have um, a minor dressed in tatters reading the Torah or naked reading the Torah because of issues of community honor. Um, and if you turn to the next page, uh, the prayer leaders should not uncover the ark in front of the community because of the same obligation, and a woman should not read from the Torah because of the honor of the community. And this is probably the most pertinent one for our sources. So the point here is, there is this notion of a community honor, which means that there are certain things that one is not allowed to do publicly because they seem to be, well, you tell me, um, what, what is the common thread? What, is the pro what does it mean to say that you cannot do something because of an issue of kavod hatsibor? Of community, of community honor. Yeah. Is it something to do with like decorum or appearance? That like, we're not saying anything's invalid. We're just saying it looks bad. It's right. not the kind of performative experience that we're hoping to get out of this kind of service. Right. What's the quorum of seven? Sorry. What's the quorum of seven? No, um, the, the, the so the seven people who get aliyot in shul. The seven. So usually oh, okay. on a regular shabbat, there's seven people. Um, so seven people are called but up to the Torah, so that's the quorum of seven. I feel like this was a somewhat of a rebuttal to the to the number four argument that you didn't want to get into. Yeah. Um, just because it says specifically about it's about the community and not about the relationship to God, at least for the specific. Right. Part of this is, I mean, I think you're right. I think this could be said to say, well, these things are are about community obligation, but the honor of heaven is different. Um, you could also say that those are two slightly different things, but nonetheless, there are things which a community has the right to decide, this is no longer pertinent to me. Mm -hmm. um, meaning like a community, it can still be up to the community to say that um, I no longer perceive, we no longer perceive X activity in public as being against the honor of heaven, yeah. um, in the same way as honor of the community. Um, I think it would require a f more full investigation of what the difference is between those terms to kind of answer the question definitively. But before we get to that, there's still problems with the question of Kavod Tzibor. Meaning, so, so the, the place we want to go with this argument is to say, okay, um, we've, we have this list of things that are Devarim Shebik Tusha. 
one of those things at least overlaps with a Kavod Tzibor, this woman reading the Torah. Um, and so if we can make an argument that, and, and so therefore we can make this argument that Devarim um, um only men can do because of Kavod Tzibor, okay? Is, is that linkage clear? Right, so we, we, what we want to say is um, these activities in synagogue which are restricted to men are restricted to men because they are Devarim Shepik and because Devarim Shepik can only be done um, by men because of Kavod Tzibor, therefore, if I make an argument against Kavod Tzibor, saying that Kavod Tzibor is no longer relevant today, something along those lines, then I can say those things that are Devarim Shepik women can say as well. Um, it's a little bit of a tenuous argument. I'm just gonna like, I'll admit that. Um, and there are more steps to making that argument, and there are more that there are sources which kind of argue for the relationship between Devar Shabkadusha and men and not women and Kavod um, Tzibor. And I think if you wanted a full argument for this picture, you would need to look at those sources. You need to actually make that point, um, which you don't have time to do here. So assume, for the purposes of this conversation, that if I can say that Kavod Tzibor can be waived or can be re-understood, then women can also say Baruchu and Kaddish and Kedusha, things like that. Okay. So thank you for bearing with me. That being said, there are two basic approaches to the question about whether you can do this. Whether Kavodit Tzibor is something that is in the Tzibor's control, whether, I, whether the Tzibor can say, hey, we don't really think this is a problem, or not. Um, and the basic distinction is between the Beit Yosef and the Bach. The Beit Yosef says, this is fine. Uh, so he says, from the words of our master, the Torah in source number 19, in the words of the commentators I have recorded, it seems clear that a minor cannot lead the community in prayer, even on a happenstance basis. Therefore, the practice of having a minor lead the community in prayer at the end of Shabbat to pray the evening prayer is surprising. And I found that the Rashba wrote in response the name of the Rivid, that the reason that the Mishnah has to teach that a minor may not lead the responsive Shema or take the podium as public prayer leader is that since blessings and tefillot are all of rabbinic force, and the minor who has reached the age of education is also rabbinically mandated, therefore I might have thought that he is rabbinically obligated and can discharge anyone else, everyone else who is also rabbinically obligated. That is why he comes to teach us we do not do this on account of the honor of the community, right? So he's, he's actually kind of reinforcing the first point we made, which is that we would think, based on the other sources, that uh, there's nothing wrong with a minor fulfilling everybody else's obligation because there's kind of an equal obligation. Really, the reason he can't do it is because of this issue of kavod support. For it is a, is a disgrace to the sorry. For it is a disgrace to the community for a minor to discharge their duty. According to this reasoning, there was some support for the custom to say that the community waives its honor. So that's an important lesson. There is he, he supports this idea that it's something that a community can kind of say we don't really care about this. Um, so this is kind of the easier route to go on. If a community decides we don't think that it is dishonorable for us for a uh, for a woman to pray. Uh, publicly, or to receive an aliyah, or to do baruchu, things like that, then we think we're home free. Yeah, question? I mean, in some ways, I think it's not saying we don't think that it's disgraceful, or we don't think that it's not a kvotet zibor issue. It's just we recognize that it's a kvotet zibor issue, but we don't like, we'll, we'll waive it, right? It's not <coughs> saying that it doesn't exist. It's saying, okay, it exists, but they can still do it. Right. It's, so it's saying that the Kvodot issue exists, but at the same time, um, it is in the community's power. Meaning when it says Kvodot it is saying to the Tzibor, well, it's your Kvod, you right. decide whether, 
whether you would like to waive it or not. You're right. You're right. It could be read to say. Or at least that's that. I think is the way that the Beit Yosef is right, writing it. Right. Right. So you, you. So right. You can read the Beit Yosef as saying, yes, the Tzibur can can waive its honor, but it doesn't. It still. It still could be disgraceful. Um, it's just that they're allowed to kind of avoid, like, ignore the disgrace if they want. Right. Good. Okay. Um, this is, and, and just to like to stop for a second and say like, well, what would be disgraceful about a woman praying? This is also somewhat unclear. It's unclear why exactly it would be disgraceful for this to happen. And there have been some suggestions about what, what it might be. One is the Ritva says that men shouldn't rely, sorry, that men shouldn't rely on women to fulfill their obligations. <coughs> There's something he, he feels is inappropriate about a woman fulfilling an obligation for a man. Um, Rav Yaakov Emden says that, well, you know, it's okay, you're, uh, this is not your sources. Um, it's okay on an irregular basis, sorry, I'm just talking. Um, it's okay on a, in an irregular basis for women to fulfill men's obligations that he hasn't actually, he, has, he only thinks it's a problem on a regular basis. He thinks it's a policy decision that shouldn't be done. Um, the position taken by Rabbi Daniel Sperber when he wrote his tshuva about Shirach Rasha, or his article, I should say, I don't know if he'd call it a tshuva. But either way, he says the issue is that um, it is shameful for men because if a woman gets up and reads from the Torah, it suggests that basically the congregation ran out of men who could read. That the only literate person left in shul was a woman. Whether or not that's true. Um, and so if a woman gets up and reads the Torah, it doesn't look good for the congregation because it says they're all illiterates. Which is no longer true today, presumably. But that issue is actually, it's not just there, it comes up in other sources as well. Um, actually, just if you turn for a second to, um, um, to page 7, uh, the sources 22 and 23, talk about this question about what happens if the only people in the room are Kohanim. Um, who gets the Eliot? So usually in a shul, um, a Kohen in service, the Kohen gets the first Eliyah. If there's no Levi, then he gets the second Eliyah. But the rest of the Eliot, the other five, he doesn't get. So what happens to the other five? And so uh, the Maharam of Rotenberg um, suggests actually women should get the rest. Why? Because there's a, there's a worse message sent if Kohanim get those five. Because if a Kohen gets an Aliyah that's not meant for Kohen, it suggests he did something wrong. Like there's something wrong with his pedigree. Um, I, thought, I thought it was the first one. Like there was something wrong with the first Kohen, we had to replace him with the other Kohen getting a later Aliyah. Oh, I see. I mean, that is what I think like either way, like, if a Kohen's getting any, any Aliyah that a Kohen's not supposed to get, it suggests like, ah, that guy's like not a real Kohen, or like, there's something wrong, or like, there's something wrong with his family. So it's better that a woman get the Aliyah. It's, it's better for the community, and certainly better for the Kohen, for a, for a woman to get the, those remaining five Aliyot. Um, so that's all for the Beit Yosef. But to go back to the, to the other side of this, um, I think the more troubling side, which is the Bach. Um, this is Rabbi Yol Circus on this is on page six, number twenty, who suggests no, a community can't just decide. You know, we waive our honor when the Gemara says, when the Brayta and the Gemara says that there's an issue of kavodat tzibur. It is telling you, you should think this. You should think that there's an issue of kavodat tzibur. You shouldn't. You're not allowed to kind of get around that. This is this is not just like explaining why we do this in practice. This is, there, this is like kind of essential reason. So he says, in source number 20, rather, the matter is simple. Since the sages legislated because of their concern for the honor of the community, a community has no license to waive it. Further, if it, if it were the case that the community could waive it, all these enactments that the sages legislated because of the honor of the community, such as not rolling the Torah scroll before the community, would be waived. If you say that they are allowed 
to waive their honor, then the legislation has accomplished nothing because every community will then waive it. So basically you've neutralized all of these commands if you now say that, um, there, that um, you, can simply, you can simply waive these, right? All of these, all of these commands that are hinged on the community war principle. So this is, I think, more difficult to, to argue against. Um, and so here, I, I think, like, we, we have a few ways to go, but you had a question first. No, it's just, uh, if, if it's something that every community would waive, then how could you even define it in the first place as a Kabotetsi Right, so one way to go is to say, this isn't even a question about waiving an individual obligation, meaning like what Yael said before, is that the community waives their obligation. But the obligation, sorry, but the issue of converted support still exists. Like it's still kind of in essence disgraceful. Um, and it's this community that's decided not, not to take that seriously. But what if everyone agreed? If everyone said this is no longer disgraceful, this is like no one thinks that there's any disgrace in a woman uh, filling these roles, then that might not even be an issue of converted support for the Bach. Um, it might be beyond him because it's not, a, it's not about an individual license anymore. Okay, so that's one way to go with it. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, I know some communities um, would simply say that um, a woman reading from a Torah is just not sneeze. Now, would that be considered in the same category as Kavod Hatsipor, or is that a whole separate issue? Oh, do we need to go in a second? Okay, so we'll, we'll finish in a second. But, um, Could you? I'm sorry. Yeah. What, what word did you just say? Sneeze, like modest. Right, so it's, in, it's immodest for a woman to be up there praying. Um, Right, so I think going back to the question about um, Kolisha, this is another kind of tack on, um, another kind of uh, way of arguing against women's participation in the services. Um, I think though, I think in general those, um, those arguments have less traction than these ones do. I think like the question of Kuvodit Sibor is much more central to the text, like meaning it could, the, 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 the Brita in Megillah could have easily said women can't get up there because of Tznyut. It doesn't say that. It says because of Kuvodit Sibor. Um, so that's one answer, but uh, I think a full answer would have to go into the question of Tzniut as well. Um, another way of answering this question, I think, is to say, and then we'll finish with this, another way of answering this is to say, look, we don't always look for consensus. We don't need to get every source to work with us. Like, to go back to something we said last week, which is that we were trying to get both Rabbeinu Tram and the Lavush to agree with us about Minyan. Well, maybe we don't need to worry about the Lavush. Maybe we have the overwhelming majority of sources, but not every single source. Um, so I think we're going to have to end there this week. Um, Thank you very much for coming. Next week we're going to start, I guess next week is after the break, so in two weeks, we're going to talk about um, homosexuality and halakha.